0: Today we're looking at the book of Luke, we're looking at Jesus' table ministry, and and so we want to get our mindset into the New Testament, and while people are passing around contribution and still in that mindset a little bit, I'll just pass these around, it's the order of service for today. Let's see if you go ahead and start passing those, and it just says what songs we'll sing and the communion we'll get into. I'll ask you guys this, this question. If you were to text somebody a picture of church, they said, hey, tell me what your church is like, send me a picture, what would you text them? Picture of us eating? Okay. Like open mouth and about to, you know, (laughs) hopefully not too candid, right? Yeah, it'd be a picture of us eating. I think about it though, for for a lot of churches today, and you can go to many church websites and what's the first thing you probably see on a, a big church website? What kind of images would come up? People laughing and singing, sure, yeah. Crosses, people's, maybe a dark room, people worshiping, or you know, a concert type of thing. I see that on a lot of website home pages. But I love that here, as Amy and Madison said, if somebody says, hey, show me a picture of your church, we could text them a picture of people eating. And I have a slide here, I'm not sure who has the pointer, maybe I'll have to switch it myself. Okay, I want to get us into that mindset of what picture would Jesus show? Uh, this is just a first century town, so we're in the, the New Testament. Jesus is born, steps out of time and space and pitches his tent there in Jerusalem and then goes over to Nazareth. Some scholars say that it was a town of about 120 people, so I'm going to nerd out for about five minutes. Other scholars say it is a town of about 200 to 400 people. And I like this depiction a lot. You can see some of the homes, some of the Roman soldiers, people reclining, having a meal right over here. paints a picture of that life. But you get the idea that it was probably, you know, most of us went to high schools that were bigger than this town. You know, people knew Jesus enough to say, isn't that the carpenter's son when he came back, when he started to preach there? Another slide of uh, two depictions. Now these are modern day depictions of what archaeologists believe homes would have looked like back in Jesus' day. And granted, the poorest of the poor, they were probably living up in caves. They were probably, you know, partial cave, partial dwelling. And then if they were a little bit richer than that, they'd be in something more like this. Where you'd have several rooms or homes combined to one common courtyard. And you can see the, the millstone and right in the middle there where they could make some food, they would come together for meals there. So I actually think that, I wonder if some of these are big extended families and if they're perhaps a little more wealthy because it seems like they can make one room the kitchen and one room for the animals. But in a a poor household, it would be your entire home, your entire family in one room with the animals, with your kitchen, with everything and then another room over would be another family with their animals another room over their family their animals and you could come together and you could fellowship and your home your family would meet their home and family in the courtyard it's pretty cool to think about pretty cramped but also pretty cool this shared meal they got to have with each other i like how they have the fishing boats over there and you know can pull in the catch of the day and just make a meal different Different lifestyle, for sure. Again, they did not have a fridge, they just had to eat it together. They probably had people cooking all day long just to make these meals happen. Another one I could show you and then I'm going to talk about architecture for a second. Who's ever seen this painting before? So this isn't a modern day depiction, this is one discovered from the mid to late second century in the catacombs in Greece. The Fresco panini, I believe it's called. Kind of like panini, it means bread. (laughs) So in English, this is the breaking of bread. And it depicts what most scholars agree is six men and one woman and they have two loaves of fish right there in the middle. They have five loaves of bread. Uh, The man on the right, he's breaking one of the loaves. It's the breaking of bread. It's the Eucharist. They're having communion right here. So many scholars will tell you that this is the earliest picture of church is these people having communion right here. Behind them, there's seven baskets. It's also a glass of wine right there. So it's also symbolic of what? With these baskets, with the fish and the bread. What would that help symbolize? Feeding the 5,000, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Jesus did something with the fish and the loaves, right? Very symbolic of Christianity. So I like that. For us in modern day, if we were to text somebody a picture of church, we'd say, well, it looks like people having a meal around a table. And in the second century, when they drew a picture of what church looks like, it was a group of people having a meal around a table. It's funny, some other scholars have come come in and said, well, maybe this is one man and all women around a table. And a lot of people debate on if it's men or women. They actually had to um, do a lot of chemical recovery on this painting. It was totally eroded, had all of these red chemicals over it. So they had to slowly chisel that away. It's not very clear because of that. We already had our history lesson on communion, so don't have to spend too much time there. But we talked about how in the, the late 3rd century, they, they separated the Eucharist from the love feast. They said, hey, we're going to take this out of the temple. And then much later, they even illegalized it in the 6th century. They said, hey, no more love feasts anywhere. Not allowed to have this at all. So much so that the reformers um, up in the 1700s, actually even before that, pre-Martin Luther, 100, 150 years before Martin Luther, you had people wanting to go back to the first century, wanting to go back to kingdom culture, wanting to go back to Jesus, wanting to go back to discipleship, baptism, wanting to go back to the communion meal. People like the the Anabaptists, the the Waldensians. So many groups, I'm excited, Madison and I are going to Germany At the end of October and so I want to see all these sites where these people reformed back to this. And it's a note of how privileged we are here today, because these early reformers you can imagine a hundred years before Martin Luther, a lot of them were absolutely butchered for these practices, for going back to communion meals. Fathers would be led to their deaths with the heads of their decapitated children hanging around their necks. And they butchered them like this for administering communion to others, for having the communion meal, and also for not being ordained or approved or under the authority of the church for doing these practices. And so remember, you have to bring it all back to the first century home, gathered around a courtyard, gathered around a millstone, gathered around a table where they could prepare the meal, share your home, and share your family, have community with one another. That's what Jesus was born into. And it is in that setting that he had his ministry in the book of Luke. That ministry, that table of Jesus, it multiplied. It extended into the church. Jesus' table manners, table etiquette, welcoming people into the family of God. So those house churches multiplied under persecution, under Roman culture, under all of these forces. They stayed solidified. They stayed family. Uh, but soon architecture changed, soon the church changed, became politicized in the 3rd century. Architecture of the churches changed, they got money, they got popularity, they got government approval, uh, they went through the Gothic era, the Baroque era, they created huge cathedrals like Notre Dame. And, and these helped everyone hear throughout the room, it, it echoed throughout the whole cathedral, though at that point it was probably in a language that people couldn't understand. So rather than a table, the church became centered around an altar in the cathedral. Uh, After the reformers, after the 1700s, when the church split multiple times into multiple denominations, it really became the local church, the community church, the colonial church. Rather than being centered around an altar, they centered it around a professional speaker and around a pulpit. From there, architecture went into the entertainment phase with mass media, with entertainment culture, Church became a theater. It became an entertainment venue, uh, and it was centered all around a stage. We still have this church today. Uh, We make it like a concert. We gather around a stage to hear a band or hear a speaker, and it's really the secularization of the church, where rather than showing up to be served, we show up for a service. We show up as consumers to consume entertainment, to consume whatever they have to give us rather than serving one another. We need to have some reform. Ultimately, it's the principle of communion. It's proclaiming Jesus Christ that's important. But the form itself is also important. Centering the church not around an altar, a pulpit, or a stage, but centering it around a table. Having these relationships with one another. You know, our English word companion comes from C-U-M, the Latin root com, and pini like panini, like bread, meaning somebody to break bread with. That's your companion. So when you show up in the church today, who is your companion? Who is it that you break bread with? They took a uh, discipleship survey of Christians in America, and they asked what type of discipleship they prefer. Big group, small group, and about 38% of people answered alone. Just me and God. That's my discipleship. Uh, That's what I need in the church. That's not community. You can't have a relationship with Jesus without the community and the family of God. It's been stated that an untabled faith is an unstable faith. You know, I, I remember looking at uh, Rockefeller paintings from the 1950s and, and seeing the big happy family centered around a table, maybe enjoying some Thanksgiving. and. And I have fond memories of myself growing up with lots of aunts and cousins and we'd come together every week and we'd have a family dinner. Every Thursday night and even some of my secular friends in high school, they couldn't wait to come over on a Thursday night to see what Joey was having with his family um, because they were missing out on that experience. They shared how their family never gathered around a table in that way. They shared how they felt honored to, to just be in the presence of good company good, wholesome family who are loving up on each other. A recent article in The Atlantic spoke of the importance of having a meal together in a world where we're concerned about dairy and gluten and our gut and all these diets and health measures that we take. and It's a whole industry, but really the article stressed one of the healthiest things we can do when it comes to food is having a meal together. American families have about a fifth of their meals in the car and maybe only one meal together throughout the week. And An article in The Atlantic goes on to share how eating disorders, obesity, drugs, uh, truancy, falling out of school, academics, e- even smoking. All of these habits, all of these health concerns, academics, they all have a deep correlation with families who eat together and families who eat alone. Families who are isolated. Families who have less relationship around a table. In the family and in the church, we shouldn't be centered around a TV. We should be centered around a table. We should be healthy. We should eat smart. We should eat simply and eat together. This was the strategy of Jesus. Hospitality, familial love that transforms us. Jesus reparents us into families. The psalm says he places the lonely in families. That's what the church should be. I love how the Gospel of Luke details the table ministry of Jesus. There's about 10 different uh, table scenes where where Jesus interacts with other people, he teaches other people, and then even within those teachings there's so many parables that take place around a table. The parable of the wicked servants, the, the parable of the prodigal son returning home and then having a feast with his family. We have scenes of Jesus teaching on salvation, breaking bread, and calling sinners to repentance at the home of Zacchaeus. Uh, We have Jesus emphasizing uh, relationships at the home of Martha and Mary. We have Jesus in in the house of Pharisees teaching about how the woman's heart was in the right place uh, when she cried upon his feet. We're going to look at Luke chapter 9 to see Jesus breaking bread with the 5,000 and Luke chapter 14 to see Jesus giving two parables, one about who is greatest at the table and another about the future table, the messianic banquet the future of the kingdom and the church. I always think it's pretty interesting how you look backwards and the church started around a table, but also if you look forwards into the messianic kingdom and marriage supper of the Lamb, well, the church is going to end around a table. (laughs) We're not going to be in private retrospective communion sitting up in heaven we're going to be with one another in heaven celebrating around a table in a banquet all right luke chapter 9 jesus has just sent out the 12 to proclaim the kingdom of god and and they return in verse 10 when the apostles returned they reported to jesus what they had done then he took them with him and they withdrew by themselves to a town called Bethsaida but the crowds learned about it and followed him He welcomed them and spoke to them about the kingdom of God and healed those who needed healing. Late in the afternoon, the twelve came to him and said, Send the crowd away so they can go to the surrounding villages and countryside and find food and lodging because we are in a remote place here. He replied, You give them something to eat. They answered, We have only five loaves of bread and two fish. Unless we go and buy food for all this crowd, about 5,000 men were there. But he said to his disciples, have them sit down in groups of about 50. The disciples did so, and everyone sat down. Taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke them. Then he gave them to the disciples to distribute to the people. They all ate and were satisfied. And the disciples picked up twelve basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. Limited resources, but a passion to proclaim the word of God a passion to welcome others to his kingdom message as it says in verse 11 he, he had compassion on the crowds he welcomed them and spoke to them about the kingdom of God and he involved his disciples this wasn't only Jesus healing and serving the people he, he said no here is the bread you feed these people we're called to be servants within the kingdom of God he, he divides the 5000 into groups of 50 We're not meant to have a relationship with thousands of people, but we can have stronger interpersonal relationships with small groups. Small groups gathered around a meal. This wasn't a setting of gloom. This was a setting of celebration. The people were being fed. The people were being healed. The people were hearing Jesus speak about the kingdom of God and all its wonders. Do we have the same heart in the presence of Jesus? When we identify with him, when we proclaim him, when we share the good news, when we share the gospel, proclaim the gospel, are we loving people and serving people or are we showing up to be served ourselves? Are we coming just for the food or are we coming to serve others and welcome them into the family of God? This is why we're sent out. This is why we can't have dinner alone in isolation. We need to to go out and heal others, feed others. This is why we're given the Holy Spirit, not not to just comfort ourselves in our loneliness, but we're given the Holy Spirit so that we can witness to others. Now, if you think it's only about having fun, showing up and eating, just go on ahead to see what Jesus tells the crowd in verse 23. Then he said to them all, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily, And follow me. Jesus had fellowship, had company with everyone. He broke the socioeconomic norms. But at that table, at that hospitality, he also called sinners to repentance, to hold to his teaching. Verse 25, what good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit their very self? We can show up, we can get all the friends, we can get all the food, But what is it worth if we're not really following Jesus? Following in his footsteps, having his table ministry, a perfect balance of truth and grace. I hope that all of us can have that experience, that we can welcome others to the table. But there's other scenes within the gospel over in Luke 14. We have to ask ourselves, does my table look like Jesus's table or the table of a Pharisee? Uh, the pharisees were quite upset when jesus brought in women when jesus didn't make himself clean before dinner when he didn't wash himself when he wasn't purified in their eyes Uh, are we like this with other people luke chapter 14 verses 1 through 14 says this one sabbath when jesus went to eat in the house of a prominent pharisee he was being carefully watched there in front of him was a man suffering from abnormal swelling of his body Jesus asked the Pharisee and experts in the law, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. So taking hold of the man, he healed him and sent him on his way. Jesus was willing to help the man. They were not. Then he asked them, if one of you has a child or an ox that falls into a well on the Sabbath day, will you not immediately pull it out? And they had nothing to say. When he noticed how the guests picked the places of honor at the table, he told them this parable. When someone invites you to a wedding feast, do not take the place of honor, for a person more distinguished than you may have been invited. If so, the host who invited both of you will come and say to you, give this person your seat. Then humiliated, you will have to take the least important place. But when you are invited, take the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he will say to you, friend, move up to a better place. Then you will be honored in the presence of all the other guests. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Then Jesus said to his host, When you give a luncheon or dinner, do not invite your friends, your brothers or sisters, your relatives, or your rich neighbors. If you do, they may invite you back, and so you will be repaid. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. Although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. It's at the table that Jesus reparents people with familial love, bringing them into the family of God. Uh, But so often, rather than going out and seeking the lost, bringing them to the table, we seek our own interests, uh, how we can be served. Uh, We think that we're the greatest. We should have the best spot at the table, uh, the finest of the food, the finest cushions, the best friends, the, the most... Popular guests. This is our desire, oftentimes. My wife and I had the privilege two summers ago of going to the remote Fijian island of Batiki. And this is an island with about three villages, maybe 250 people, and they are very religious. They're Methodist, but they are, it's kind of Christianity in a bottle. They're remote, they're away from everybody else, and we went there to serve them and, and help out, but. Really, they ended up serving us. They welcome you to the island with a Savior's Savior ceremony. And this is a sacred thing where they're adding you into their family. You're getting a new Fijian dad. You're going into their home. And they all gather around a bowl of grog, and they break up some kava, and they make this <laughs> this dirty, watery drink. I actually kind of like it. Um, but the most honored guest, the elders of the village, there to sit closest to the kava bowl. And so you have to go through a series of no, I don't want to sit there. When they're pleading, please sit here, sit here, sit at the most honored place. And about five or six times you have to deny it. You have to say no thank you, no thank you, no thank you. Uh, You're making a grave mistake if you accept on the first or second offer and then you sit in the most honored place. This is not looked on with favor. They base this practice off of what they see Jesus doing in the Gospels. Seeking to serve, not to be served. So once they're welcomed into the island, we, were, we stayed in the huts, in the village, with the people. Every day, my Fijian dad, he was a fisherman. He'd go out to sea for hours and hours just to catch us dinner. And other members of the family, they would cook all day long over an open fire just to provide a meal for us. And they'd put out their, their finest dishes on the floor and we'd eat together and celebrate with each other. They gave up their own beds. They, they insisted multiple times, no, I will sleep on the floor, you sleep in my bed. They were the best hosts I've ever had. And I just thought to myself, how much do I misrepresent Jesus compared to these people? They represented Jesus to me. They were the ones waking up far earlier than me in the morning to study their Bible and then to live it out throughout the day in service so that they could host, so that they could welcome, so that they could serve me. They were proclaiming the gospel with their life. The next parable in Luke chapter 14 starts in verse 15. The great banquet, the messianic supper of the Lamb. Verse 15, when one of those at the table with him heard this, he said to Jesus, Blessed is the one who will eat at the feast in the kingdom of God. Jesus replied, A certain man was preparing a great banquet. And invited many guests at the time of the banquet he sent his servants to tell those who had been invited come for everything is now ready but they all alike began to make excuses the first said i've just bought a field i must go see it please excuse me another said i've just bought five yoke of oxen and i'm on my way to try them out please excuse me still another said i just got married so i can't come the servant came back and reported this to the master then the owner of the house became angry and ordered his servant, Go out quickly into the streets and alleys in the town, bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. Sir, the servant said, What you ordered has been done, but there is still room. Then the master told his servant, Go out to the roads and country lanes and compel them to come in, so that my house will be full. I tell you, not one of those who are invited will get a taste of my banquet. We need to compel people to the table. They need to be convinced of our love. They need to be convinced that they're welcome at the table. And for so many, they'll put out artificial excuses. They'll want to alienate themselves from that table, from that love. All the excuses listed in the chapter there, they're superficial. There's no good excuse to miss the feast, especially if you believe ultimately this is your salvation you're talking about. No excuse is good for missing the table. Jesus wants everyone there. He wants those who are open to the invitation, the costly invitation. We need to show people that gospel, that good news, that they're welcome at the table. Second Corinthians chapter 3, verses 2-3 through three says this, You yourselves are our letter, written on our hearts, known and read by everyone. You show that you are a letter from Christ, the result of our ministry, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God. Not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. We may be the only Bible that some people ever see in their lives. It's just our character, just the way we interact with them. We're a letter from Christ. We are a representative of his gospel and his church. So I ask that question again. If you were to text out a picture of your church, what would it look like? Would it look like a dark room? Would it look like a big building with a steeple? Or would it look like the family of God identifying with Jesus' hospitality around a table? Thanks for listening to the Bend ICOC podcast.